Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. For the last time in this series, I would like to ask you to stand with me while we read the scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 in its entirety. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Father, we pray as we consider these words that they would run deep into our heart and we would have a greater understanding of your good news, the gospel message in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we have been walking through in this series, this message, what what the apostle tells us is the gospel. This is the gospel. And we learned in the first week that the gospel begins, if we're going to have any understanding of what God means by the good news, the good news that answers the deepest questions of life and the problems of this world, if we're going to have any understanding of that, it begins with accepting the fact that he is Lord, that Jesus is Lord of all that he is the one who spun everything into existence and got it all in motion and keeps it together. It's all made by him. It's all made for him. If we don't understand that, we're really not going to understand much about who we are or what God means in our lives. If we don't understand that God is the designer of all, the purposes and plans of everything, whether that be the world around us, whether that be our minds, souls, spirits, and bodies, if we don't understand that it's all made for his design and for his purposes, and we have, we're not able to yield to that, we just aren't going to understand how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, what makes things tick. In other words, if we understand who God is, then we'll understand who we are. And if in our minds he's not Lord of all, And frankly, he's not Lord at all. That's where it begins. And then we looked after that in the second week on the fact that he is also first. That means first in rank. It's sort of like we mentioned how the sun is first in rank in the solar system. You pull the sun out and all the planets spin away into chaos. 
But with the sun in its proper place, everything begins to move and rotate in its proper order. They understand their position. They understand how to move. That, uh, that movement has direction. It has purpose. And so Jesus, in the same way, needs to be first. If he's not first in our lives, then nothing is going to work in the proper order. Whether or not we think it is, it's not going to be working in the order that God meant it. And so then in week three, we looked at after he is Lord and he is first, we looked at how he died and rose. This is the core of the gospel. This is God's answer, the good news to the bad, the good news to the question, what's wrong with the world? We looked very closely at the fact that what's wrong with the world is, as one person one time wrote, somebody wrote them, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote back and said, uh, dear sirs and, and, and friends, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. There's sin in the world. There's sin in our hearts. It's what causes us to create chaos and division and anger and everything else that we pull into this world. It's affected the creation itself. And yet God comes in and he says, there's good news. Through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have turned that on its head. I have an answer for sin. I can bring life into death and beyond. And he is the centrality of the gospel. You know, if somebody asked you, list five reasons on an exam, you know, list five reasons why you should enter into heaven, you better not have five, you better only have one, and that's Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We add nothing to him. He is the good news of God's eternal life that he offers to us. And so in this, in our final week, he's Lord, he's first, he died and rose. I want to add on something that's going to break that mold. This is going to be about running and resting. Because I promised you there would be three weeks where we would be talking, the gospel would be three weeks God, three parts God, and one part us. And so this is that one part. This week is the one part us somewhat. We're going to see how really God, it's all about God. And if you haven't gotten that so far, let me just state it clearly. It's all about God. And the more we can understand that, the more we understand who we are. But I want to capture this last week with this idea of running and resting. And there's two parts I want to give you in the time we have. The first part is more of the understanding side, what you might call the doctrinal side of this question of what it means ultimately to rest in God. That's a, a key piece of this, the resting. The running is also part of it, but we're going to look at both. What does it mean to rest in God? We're going to look at how that works out scripturally, doctrinally, in our understanding. And then I also want to look at that element of rest as our lived experience, because that's another part of it. And that's where the rubber meets the road. So let's start by taking the final section of these scripture verses we looked at because we noticed the apostle said, here's the whole gospel, he's first, he's Lord, he's first, he died and rose, he did all this for you, and, and this is for you, you to receive by faith, by, by, by simply grasping onto it. And he says, if you continue though, he says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, if you stay with it, don't move, wait on it. But there's this big if, and I wanted to make sure we tackled this before we move on, because when we look at that, we can tend to think, oh, wait a minute, so it is about me. I mean, I've got to continue it. Isn't that what it says? Is that what it says? This work that God began, there's another scripture somewhere that says, you know, God began his work by the Spirit. Do you really think that he's going to continue that work by your, your own effort, your human effort? Is that how it works? But we need, in order to understand how this fits, we, we've got to understand this verse because it looks that way. Well, what's important to understand is God's word 
is our plumb line. We need to shape our thinking by the word. And when we look at this, while in the English that looks like it's conditional, if you do this, then you get this, there's more going on in the language that God gave it to. And let me, let me frame it this way. When you hear the word if, you can hear that in at least two ways. Let me give you an example. If I said the statement, if you are in this room right now or online, if you are here right now, you are hearing my voice. That's one way. Do you see that? If you're here, it's a definite. You've, you're hearing my voice. No question. And so if you're not here, of course, then you're not one of the ones that hear it. You're not one of the ones to get it. But if you're here, you're going to hear what's being said. But now here's another way to use that word. If you're paying attention, you might learn something. Now, that's a different kind of if. Are you paying attention? That's up to you. I don't know. Are you learning anything? That's up to me. We're going to have to work together a little bit on this one. But that's a conditional if, isn't it? If you're listening. You may not be. You may be listening. You may not be paying attention, right? And so that is not the meaning of this. We need to understand that when the apostle wrote this, he had the first meaning in mind. If you're one of the ones that are here, then you hear it. You get it, and you will not move. And it's important we understand that because the verses before it, he just got done saying how he has made us holy and, 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 and unblameable and without accusation and free. And it would call that into serious question if we understood this differently. But the, the tense that he uses of the word there is you are in the room right now, and so you're hearing. The ones who are here are hearing. Because when it comes to the gospel, we can make a big mistake, and that is to start looking to the wrong thing. We can start ignoring the sun, wrenching it out, and looking at the earth, and the earth is just going to spin out of control. We're looking at the wrong person in the mix. In fact, some people ask the question. You probably have heard this question sometimes. People follow Jesus in those circles. They'll say, you know, can, can you lose your salvation after God gives you this gift? Can you lose it? Can you not? How does that work? I would submit to you that I think that's the wrong question at the end of the day because we're focusing on the wrong person. It's focusing on you. That's not where we want to start. We need to understand how this salvation works out, how this good news works out by first focusing not on the earth but on the sun. We need to focus on the one who's at the center of it all. So let's look at that. We touched a little bit on what that meant last week, what the cross and the, and the resurrection did, but let's look at it one more time. What was done when Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead and conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave? What was offered and, and provided for us? Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. See, there's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can do. Christ plus anything equals nothing. You better be relying solely on the fact that it's what he did for you. And when, he, when you do that, you're receiving a gift. You don't earn a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You don't even deserve a gift. It's given freely. It's received freely. That's what was done. How was it accomplished? How does God accomplish? What, what is accomplished in that gift? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, tells us this. God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin. He had no sin of his own. He was righteous. He was holy. He was God in the flesh. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took on, the one who did nothing wrong, took on everything that had ever been done wrong. 
From the start of time to the end of time, everything you, me, and anyone ever did, he took it on his shoulders so that in him, remember, those who believe, in him might become the righteousness of God. When you receive Christ by that simple faith, like we talked about last week, we are now presented to God as holy and, un, and, and, and without accusation and good precisely because when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what's been applied to your account. Some people call this imputed righteousness. The word impute means it's, it's put upon somebody. It's not theirs to begin with, but it's put upon them. So you think of it that we in our, in our sin, we in our our, our deeds, and I don't care how good you think our deeds are, at the end of the day, the scripture tells us every single one of them, even the ones that look good, are tainted. Our hearts are wicked. And, and, and even our righteous acts, the things that look righteous, are, are a bit filthy and dirty because they're all tainted by sin. And so we've got this, this dirt and this grime that's kind of right, gone right down to the skin and beneath, and God comes along, and not only does he wash that off, but he puts his own robe of righteousness on us. So you're standing white and clean. And that is how God sees you when he looks at you. It's not something you earned. It's not something you could ever do. It's not your own. And that's why the scripture tells us that God credits this to our account. It's not payment. Our payment was, we saw it last week, the payment for sin is death. This is credited to your account. It's a gift. And so that's what was done and, and how it was applied. And so what does that mean? How, how, how lasting is that? How effective is it? John chapter five, Jesus tells us. He says this, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me, if they hear the good news and they believe in God that God sent me, they have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. That's God's perspective on it. If you have heard, he's saying, that if, if you've heard, then this is you. And this is the work that God will do. He can promise that because it's not because it's based on us. If so, then it would be conditional. But it's based on the righteousness of Christ, and that is not conditional. That has earned payment for sin in full. And so that's what God offers to us. And then to what end does that work itself out? Philippians chapter one says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. See, what God promises, he delivers. When God is at work, he will complete the work. And this is the, the assurance that he offers to us. This is the, the confidence that he offers in Christ. And so since it's Christ's finished work working out in our lives, what God wants us to do is rest in that. He wants us to rest in that finished work because when we start mixing ourselves in, we miss the whole thing. We mess it up. And so God wants us to look to the sun and not to our own shadow. And so ultimately it leads to rest. Now stay with me because there's a flip side to this coin. And it's an important flip side. It has to do with running. But where this leads is ultimately to rest. Hebrews 4 verse 10 says, For anyone who enters God's rest, that's the rest he offers in this good news, also rests from their works. What will you add to what God has completed? What could we claim? That's a dangerous game to begin to add to the work that God is doing in you. 
as if it's to your credit. And when God gives us this rest, we find that I really believe that, that how we understand our identity, how we understand who we are and who he is and that relationship will greatly affect how we live out our faith, our life. And it affects everything we understand. In fact, there was, um, there was a book that was written by an author named Max Lucado. Uh, he wrote, it was a children's book, but it's one of those ones that everyone should read because it captures a basic kernel of an idea. The storyline was of uh, uh, these figures, these wooden people, little wooden people called Wemmicks that lived in this town. And what they would do is every time somebody did something that every, you know, that was a good thing, they would all put a golden star sticker on that person. And, and, and when one of those little wooden people would do something that wasn't good, they'd put a little green dot on them. And so here was Punchinello, one of these Wemmicks walking around feeling pretty bad about himself because he had a lot of green dots and very few golden stars. And he didn't know what to do about this. Every time he tried to do more, he just kept getting more and more heaped on him until he saw one day uh, one of the Wemmicks named Lucia who didn't have anything. No gold stars, no green dots, nothing. And he asked what was going on. She said, well, they don't stick to me. And he said, well, how? And she said, go visit Eli. Eli is the woodmaker. He made you. He'll explain it. And so he goes and sees Eli and he discovers that Eli says, you matter to me. I made you and I don't make mistakes. I will shape you to be what you're supposed to be. And stickers like that only stick if that's what you're putting your trust in. But the more you trust my love, the less you're going to think about the stickers. And you find that as Punchinello lives this out in close relationship with his maker and allows his maker to begin to change him into who he wants to be, they just all fall off. When we're trying to stick all these works on ourselves and we're trying to gain approval from people and we're trying to gain approval from God and we're trying to make sure that we're doing it right here or keeping short lists there, it's not that these things are unimportant. Stay with me. But when that is where our trust is, we have wrenched the sun out of its proper place. We no longer know who is first and who is Lord. And that's a dangerous game. We need to rest in Christ's finished work. But that divine assurance is not divine presumption. We should never look at that. In fact, I would question the understanding of anyone who thinks that that means we have a license now to live any way we want. Romans 6 says this, should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more of this wonderful grace, this free gift? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, we've been fundamentally changed since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? It makes no sense to think God saved me so now I get to live any way I want. I would question the understanding of the good news if that is your view. And so salvation, is it, a, is it an event or is it a process? Yes. That's the answer. We've seen how it's very much an event from God's standpoint. It's very much a done thing. But is it a process? Yes, God is working something out in those who's, who he has redeemed. In fact, we see this in the scripture itself. We see statements that we have been saved. You can see that in Ephesians. Then we see that we are being saved in 1 Corinthians. And then finally, that we will be saved one day when we join with Jesus again in Romans. So there is a process to this. So the penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin is shrinking as we walk this out with God, and one day the presence of sin will be obliterated when we raise as he rose. That's the path. 
But we need to understand where it starts. Because if we don't, we can fall into one of two equal and opposite errors. One you've probably heard about more than the other. I won't, that's why I'm emphasizing this other side more. Because I want you to understand there's two errors we can fall to. The first one is what we haven't been talking about, but it's this other one called hyper-grace. It's this idea that since I've been saved, I live any way I want. God's not going to condemn me. He knows me. I'm good with him. He's good with me, and I'm good. You know, don't judge me, okay? It's kind of this idea that Jesus is my friend, but no more. Doesn't have the right to tell me how to live. He just approves of what I do, okay? That's a problem because that limits Jesus, and he's no bigger than how you see him. Can you see that? You've wrenched the sun out of its place. That's a serious problem. But the other problem is what you might call hyperworks. I don't want to call it legalism because when we hear that word sometimes in certain Christian circles, we think, oh, those are the Pharisees, that's not me. But we need to think about this. Hyperworks. What are we trusting in? In other words, if we think every day that I got to clean myself off, that it's about my short list with God, it's about whether or not I'm doing enough, giving enough, serving enough, proving enough, then we've, again, what we're saying is I need to impress Jesus. I need to do something to prove to him that I earn the salvation that he's willing to freely give. That's a problem because we're limiting Jesus again. See, the first one says Jesus is my friend, but he's no bigger than that. And the second one says I'm bigger than Jesus. Either way, we've gone to an extreme where lordship is sacrificed. That we no longer understand who we're rotating around. It's more about us. And if you do that, I'm not sure really that you get the gospel at all if you're falling to either one of those. So be careful. Consider whether you've really heard the gospel if you think you can do anything you want because you're saved by grace, or you think that you've got to prove it every single day or else maybe you're going to fall out of God's grace. Either one of those is making somebody really big, but it ain't Jesus. The proper view, I believe, that the scripture points out is ownership, lordship, salvation. He owns me. I'm his. You're his. He bought you with his blood, with his life. He made you. He designed his purposes for you. He knows how you should be, think, act, love. He knows these things. And he wants to shape those things in you like Eli did to Punchinello. He wants to shape you. So we're saved if we get that and we trust in him for that. But we're also being saved. I'm in right standing with Christ now by what he did. And I'm resting in that, but I'm also becoming more like Christ every day. That's what he wants, and so I'm running toward that. You see, it's both. It's resting and running. I mean, because to be sure, there are two voices in the world always battling. There's the voice of God, and then opposed to that, there's the voice of our flesh and our sin and the devil, and we saw what the devil can do in the first week when he wants to trip us up. And all that's going on. We have to choose which voice we're listening to. So it's a very real thing. It's a very real challenge that we have to live out every single day. But we need to understand he's more than able to do the work in us. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for Jesus to reappear and come back. The grace of God is our teacher. What better teacher can you have 
than the grace of God. Do we really think that we're better teachers than that? Do we really think we're more skilled than what God can do in us if we yield to him and rest in him every day? Years ago, I was at a, a camp, and uh, it, was a, it was a music camp, but I learned ping pong. When I was there. I was playing a lot of ping pong. I was getting pretty good at it, and I was starting to whip a few people, you know? I was getting pretty full of myself. And there were a few people that I couldn't beat, but I was close, you know? And then along comes this kid one day, and he walks up, and he says, hey, you want to play a game? I said, sure. So I pick up my paddle. I'm ready to go, and he picks up a shoe. I'm thinking, okay, he's going to throw that at me when I beat him. That's the plan here. That wasn't the plan. He proceeded to beat me playing with his shoe. He played ping pong and beat me 21 to 7 <laughs> with a shoe. That's embarrassing. <laughs> to this day, it's hard to share that story. Then I found out that he was a national ping pong champion. He didn't tell me that before the game started. But what did I learn? <laughs> I might have a few skills. I might be able to beat a few things, and then a few things take me down. But there's no way I'm going to beat that national champion. I mean, he's got skills just way beyond any of us. God has skill way beyond any of us if we will simply rest in him and yield to his lordship. But that's what we fight every day because that's what our fallen nature does. We want to fight against that. We want the credit. Or we want him out of the way so we can live the way we want. And either way, we run into an issue. And so, when we properly understand this, then we realize that resting doesn't bring smugness. Because when we see that Christ is Lord and Christ is first and he's all, then, then he becomes a lot bigger and we become smaller. Or when we make effort to run with him every day, if we properly understand what that means, not our credit, but what his work is that he's doing in us, again, he's becoming larger. We're becoming smaller. And so that doesn't lead to pride. So don't waste time with the question. Can I lose my salvation? Can I not? Well, let people debate that if you want. It's not a bad question. But I would say at the end of the day, just think this way. Believe like you can't lose salvation and run like you can. Rest in the completed work, but run hard after him. Apostle Paul said it in Philippians 3. He said, I don't mind that I'm exactly what God wants me to be. I have not yet reached the goal. You see, I'm not there yet. But I continue trying to reach it. That's running and make it mine. That's what Christ Jesus wants me to do. It's the reason he made me his. I'm already his. I'm already with him. That's resting. So that's how to balance this idea of what it means to rest in Christ and to run. But let's talk for in the last few minutes here about running while resting. This is the lived experience part of it. Real quick, Luke chapter 10, we see a story. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet at rest, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Who was running and who was resting? I wonder. There was somebody recently that talked about the gospel of hustle. You ever hear that term? I hadn't. 
But they said, we're increasingly being taken over by this idea that we who are believers in the gospel of hustle, they said, we believe in the gospel of efficiency or time management or success. We're convinced we just need these things and we're going to produce a whole better future, riches and wealth and health and happiness and all the things that we might tie to it. But the whole idea, they said, of the formula breaks down when it can't solve the problem of simply being a person. It doesn't solve the problem of pain. And what they found is, as they lived out the gospel of hustle, they said, the more I worked, the more work I seemed to get. And even success ended up looking like failure. Are you living out the gospel of hustle? Distractions and busyness, working for God, working to solve all the problems, working to resolve all the issues, working to have all the answers, and you just feel kind of tired with all that running. There never seems to be any resting. And then we look to Mary and we see somebody who's resting and we realize she's actually the one running. She's running after the right thing by sitting right there. So my questions are, are you trying to chase down God's approval? Are you not accepting that in Christ he's already approved of you? Hey, Punchinello, you out there anywhere? Seeking all those gold stars? Realizing, seeking for something he's already given you? If so, maybe you're, you're running without resting. Are you distracted by the things you, you need to do? You can't sit down with God for even a minute, not even a single meal you can't find the time to sit alone with him with his word. Let him heal the cracks. Let him give the direction and guide you as a shepherd guides a lost sheep. You don't even have that time. Maybe tomorrow, not today. Do you think it's unfair that you're having to do so much while others aren't? They're just sitting around enjoying God and you're doing all the work. You know, why isn't God joining me in, in, in this hectic pace? But perhaps much of what we do, we didn't have to do in the first place. We're just maybe doing it even for the wrong reasons. It reminds me of the, the writing called Juggling. Up and down and up and down, the balls are circling round and round. They trace a circle in the air and keep them flying. Say a prayer. Hum and whistle, smile and sing all the time you're juggling. Not enough? Let's add one in. Always room for more to spin. One false move and they'll all fall. Never stop or slow or stall. Never think to stop and slow. That's not what a juggler knows. Are you a juggler? Just juggling life? Juggling faith? Or perhaps we're just simply moving when he wants us to be waiting. You see, waiting is not inactive. That's not what we mean by waiting. Mary was not inactive, though she might have been still. Don't miss that. To wait on God is not to wait, but eagerly anticipate what he will choose to do through you and when he calls to move. That idea of waiting is very different than moving because there's a difference between moving for God and God moving in you. And so do you live there? Do you live in the place of moving? Moving, 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 your work is never done. The day's passing is pointless unless you're on the run. Running, 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 you're always on the move. The day's end fast approaching with so much still to prove. Proving, 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 your life has meaning still if you can keep on moving with fortitude and will. Willing, willing, willing to miss out on what's best until you sit down at the feet of him who offers rest. Mary sat at his feet and waited on Christ. Are we doing that? 
or perhaps the mountain of our problems is just bigger than our God. I don't know what your problems are, but perhaps they seem so big that we just don't have the time. We can't see them anymore. But I'll tell you what he says. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest. I think he says it twice for a reason. We chase after so many things. We feel a need to prove ourselves to so many people. We're always, every single day, wondering if we're acceptable enough. We live in fear and concern and worry every minute of the things we can't control, the things that were never in our control. But because we feel we've lost control, they lead to so much anxiety, so much worry, so much fear. And in all of that, we have Jesus sitting there in silence saying, will you just sit at my feet for a while? There's nothing you need to prove. I bought you. There's nothing you need to seek for acceptance. You're mine. There's nothing that you need to try to gain. I paid it all. And there's no future you need fear because I am your future. And there's nothing you need to rush after today. Sure, there's things you gotta do. Sure, there's things you gotta chase. But while you're doing that, don't forget to chase after me. Don't forget to sit with me. And don't forget that I'm always chasing after you. Running and resting. That's part of the gospel. And it's appropriate that we end that with a celebration and a remembrance of Jesus in that ordinance that he gave us called the Lord's Supper, communion. Because I think he, he knew that we would be in a place of conflict for most of our lives in a difficult and a challenging world. It didn't catch him by surprise. And so he knew how to solve that problem. He knew it would never get solved by ignoring it. He knew it would never get solved by pretending it didn't exist or whisking it away or making excuses or saying, well, it's not so bad. No, he knew we would deal with deep, serious issues from our own sin to the burdens we carry. And they would be heavier than mountains. But he's bigger than mountains. He's the sun. And so he knew the answer to it, and he went to a place of the most extreme conflict that we could imagine because he knew that place when he took on the conflict of this fallen and broken world, that that would lead to our peace, to our rest. And that's what he did on that cross.
And that's what we celebrate with communion. If you are a member of this church, if you attend here, great, you're invited to attend this. If you're not a member of this church and you don't attend here, you're still invited to join with communion. The only thing would be that you want to be a follower of Jesus. You want to understand the gospel that we've talked about. Because if you don't, then it's just moving, moving, moving. You don't really understand. You're not sitting at his feet. And so let this be an opportunity to reflect on that. But if you take that step by faith with him, then join. It's just based on his promise. We're going to receive in a few minutes here. All I would ask is that you just hold the elements and you'll receive them in a double cup. Just pull those gently apart and then we'll take the bread and the cup together in just a few minutes. Father, we come to you in this moment and I realize that there are people here in totally different places. Some of us are struggling with that need for self-approval. Maybe we've mapped that onto you and we're more lost than ever. Some of us, God, are, just have a hectic schedule. We don't feel like we can breathe. We're not sure how to come up for air. You're ready to breathe into our souls again. Some of us, God, are facing such a mountain. We're not sure if it's the last one on this earth and we won't even be able to climb it. But God, you're already waiting on the other side. Whatever our burden, I pray that we would come to you in this moment and we would find rest. He is Lord of all. He is first. He died and rose for you and me. And we rest in that. And in that rest at his feet, we run to him until we see him again. This is the gospel. Let's share that in our lives. Let's share that in the way we live. And we'll carry that forward with us. There'll be those here for prayer if you seek that. In the meantime, we'll close. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you. And today I pray that each one of us in our own place can bring our burdens to you and cast them on you, Lord, and find rest for our souls. Help us to walk this path with you with only the, the strength only you can provide. God, as we go forward and walk the good news of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And the church said, amen.